Luke 19, verses 1 through 27. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to, his, to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your minna has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your minna has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the minna from him, and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Good morning. Uh, my name's Casey. I'm one of uh, the pastors here um, at Free City Church. And if you're with us for the first time, we're glad you're here. We, uh, we're kind of on the back half of working through uh, some stories in Luke where uh, they're all accompanied a- around a dinner table. Uh, where the religious leaders are astonished by who Jesus is willing to eat with, and uh, they grumble. Like, we've seen that word over and over. They grumble, they grumble, they grumble. And that word actually should pull you back to another story uh, in the Old Testament where the exodus of God's people coming out of the land of slavery 
coming out of oppression, and they wind up in, in the, the wilderness. And over and over, though God provides them miraculously, they compare what they have with what they think they remember that they had back in slavery, and they grumble, and they grumble, and they grumble. And so there's so many illusions that are pulling us back and then pushing us forward. And what you actually experienced, uh, 1 through 27, um, I need to apologize. We're actually not going to cover all of that. It's kind of false advertisement. <clears throat> it's it's kind of like clickbait, you know? Like when you're on, you know, on the internet and you see something and they say, we can give you a 3.2 interest rate on a 30-year mortgage and you click it because you're interested and then your phone rings instantly. And they're like, hey, can we help you with that interest rate? I'm like, I, this, this, is, this is what Big Brother's all about. I, I, how do you know? And so uh, we're, we're going to cover mostly just the story of Zacchaeus. Um, but I, I want to show you how, how this flows together. So if you have your scriptures or if you're on your phone, just be ready to scroll up and down. Like I want to sh- show how, how Luke 19 flows. And so the first in verses 1 through 10, we have um, the story of Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector who was a wealthy man who was prevented by the crowd to get close to Jesus because they hated him. We have him climbing up a tree to see Jesus. And then Jesus just shows up and says, hey, can I eat at your house? Which is rude. I mean, you shouldn't just show up to someone's house. Can I eat with you? I mean, but he does. And Zacchaeus is blown away. And at the end of that story, Jesus declares, Zacchaeus is a son of Abraham. He has been saved. Today, salvation has come to his house. So following that, you have this transition verse, verse 11, where it says, as they heard these things. And so as they heard what Jesus just said about Zacchaeus, as they heard, he is now saved. Salvation has come. He is a child of Abraham. He is in. As they heard these things, Jesus has another story. And so it's the parable of the, the ten minas. And so, you know, the parable of the ten minas, like, let me just kind of unpack it for you really fast so you know I'm not scared of it. I'm not scared of it. Um, and so first you've got Jesus. He, look at verse 12. Jesus is the ruler. He talks about this ruler who's in his land, and he's going to go away to be crowned king over a greater land. And so he is the ruler who leaves. Jesus in just days, or actually less than that, is about to be taken and beaten, brought up in false, trumped up charges, and executed. He is going to be the ruler that leaves, that is then coronated and come back. Look at verse 15. In verse 15, this victorious king, this victorious ruler comes back. Jesus is going to come back from the dead. And then Jesus is going to come back victoriously at the end of time. And so then if you look at verse 13 through 14, we have the part where he says, hey, those people uh, that look at, uh, I'm entrusting them as I leave. I'm entrusting them with a deposit. I'm giving you something. They all get the same. They all get one mina, a sum of money, a large sum of money, like three months wages. They all get the same thing. And anyone who invests it, anyone who puts the mina to work, their response when Jesus comes back, when this ruler comes back in verses 16 through 19, their response is the same. Your mina earned more. Like they didn't say, man, look how hard I worked. Like I was mowing your, I mean, they didn't say anything. They said, your Ina, Mina, Ina, Mina, Ina, Mina, your Mina, it earned more. The deposit which Jesus gives us, which is the Holy Spirit, 
when we just lean into the deposit of what he's given us, it will earn more. It will multiply. When you lean into the presence of the Holy Spirit, Christian, when you lean into the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, when you do what we've been talking about, when you do this type of thing that you invite a lost and broken world around your table and you just kind of share what Jesus is doing in your life, like you just let him in, like not like you have to nail the gospel presentation, that you just talk about your hope in Jesus, like when you work out of weakness, it will work. The Holy Spirit will go forth and draw sin. You don't have to defend God. Just let him out. You know, one of Friday when I was studying, um, you know, behind, thinking, man, I gotta, so no one's gonna write this sermon for me. Um, one of my friends, a guy that, uh, that we gotta, I gotta baptize and um, gotta disciple him and uh, gotta then marry he and his wife. Um, he called, and I, mean, I didn't really have time, but I was like, oh, I don't want to be a jerk. And so I answered the phone, because I'd already talked to the people who can't really give me a 3.2 interest rate. They're liars. Um, and so I, uh, I answered the phone. His name's Mark. And man, he just wanted to catch up. And man, they are using their house in just incredible, just mission-type ways. And uh, one couple that they're ministering to just lives on their street. Um, he... Uh, the guy is really addicted to pornography and it's causing a lot of havoc in their marriage. And so they're just kind of starting to get into the church and they're, they're, what they, they call them something different, but their city group, they're just kind of starting to get in. And the wife kind of outed him, like they have a lot of marital stress and he wasn't ready to share that, like kind of out, outed that, that struggle. And so he was super hurt and it was basically this where he just said, I'm never going back. Forget it. I'm never going back. And so Lauren, uh, Mark's husband, was like, hey, you need to call him. He's like, you want me to call him? I've talked to him like twice. What do you want me to say? You know, he's like, just call him. And so Mark thinks about it, and he just calls him. And he, you know, the guy picks up the phone, and he says, listen, just hear me out, my story, for 10 minutes. And if you don't want to hear anymore, I'll never talk to you again. And so what he did was he leaned into his story, which their story, I mean, Mark just grew up really, really lost. Mark played baseball, was really, really good, ended up playing, uh, you know, triple A, you know, minor league baseball and trying to figure that out. Met Lauren, became a Christian, um, was growing, didn't know anything. Somewhere in the time of them, there was, in the time of them dating, he made a horrible mistake. He made a horrible mistake that included infidelity uh, that could cost them their relationship. And then he, he lied about it. And so in premarital counseling, this comes out. And it's like, man, I might lose everything that's important to me. This was before we were engaged, but this horrible mistake. I mean, it was sin. And she forgives it, and they walk. And man, they have this beautiful family, and they're doing great. And so he just unpacks his weakness. He unpacks his story. He says, Jesus saved me from all of that. I don't want you to look at me and think that I've never messed up. I don't want you to think you're the only one. Jesus saved me. See, what he did was he just leaned into the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is working in powerful ways. And so your mina, your mina earned more. Your mina worked. You know, and so then we get 
into this. And so, you know, the, every servant that entrusted the mina that actually did it, you know, one earns 10, one earns five, they get the same reward. I mean, they're both like, wow, the master's in, 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 impressed. He's like, look what you did. This is incredible. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now you get 10 cities. Now you get five cities. And then, you know, the guy that doesn't do anything, there's both reward and there's judgment. And then, you know, in verses 20 through 27, it's the awkward part where he comes back. He rewards the faithfulness of those um, who were faithful. And then those who refused to see his rule and hated him, he, he puts them to death. Which, you know, the whole like, oh, you don't like me, I'm going to kill you, slaughter you in front of my eyes. That, you know, that's why people don't like to preach this. Um, but he's talking about this. Like, if we refuse the rule of Jesus, we get second death. Jesus actually gives us exactly what we want. You don't want Jesus? You don't have to have Jesus. But apart from Jesus is apart from God. It's apart from all blessings and all goodness. And you will have your lonesome self. Like you will be isolated in all the brokenness that you have. All the insecurities and fears that you wrestle with become the goodness of your life. And the Bible describes that as hell. And so if you don't want Jesus, you can live separately from Jesus. I mean, it's pretty much sums it up. I mean, it gets the bad rap, bring my enemies here so I can slaughter them kind of thing. But I mean, right here, but this now points forward. And so, you know, it was in their hearing. And so they see what happens to Zacchaeus. They don't like it. He says, hey, I've got a story. But it's pointing forward to the verses that follow. Like in verses 28 through 40, we have the triumphant entry. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and that's verses 40, uh, then 41 through 40, we have him weeping over Jerusalem because they won't embrace the kingdom of God. And then in verses 45 through 48, Jesus clears out the temple, and then we have this ominous verse, verse 47, where the chief priests and the scribes, and look, the principal men of the people, they start to seek to destroy Jesus. They were seeking to destroy him. And so this is pointing forward. It's in the hearing of those who just saw what happened to Zacchaeus, but it's pointing forward. We're going to focus specifically on Jesus eating with Zacchaeus. And we're just going to ask a real simple question. I, I heard this, this sermon preached several years ago, and uh, the, the pastor who was preaching, he just asked this question. It's important the questions you ask the text. He just asked this question. What did Zacchaeus do to be saved? Because it starts off, he wants to see Jesus. It ends up, Jesus saying, this man has been saved. What did, G, what did Zacchaeus do to be saved? That is a flat question, just on the surface of the text. We're not like getting deep. We're not like getting all existential here. Surface of the text. And these are going to be our points. Number one, Zacchaeus climbed a tree. Verses one through four. No, number two, he looked over past the crowd to try to find Jesus. That's verses really five through seven. We'll jump around a little bit there. And then number three, and then he brought Jesus home. He brought Jesus in. He brought Jesus into his life. Like that is answered on the surface. We're going to dig in much deeper. And if you do the same things, that's just beneath the text. If you do the same things, you too can be saved. And if you're a Christian, if you do the same things, your faith will grow. And like what you see around your dinner table can be life-changing. Let me pray for us. God, Lord, <clears throat> I pray that as we just look at the surface of the text and we dive in deeper how it relates to us, I pray that you would, um, 
Lord, I pray that you would unshackle things in people's lives. I pray that you would give courage to people to stomp on their pride. I pray that you give people, uh, men and women in the room, courage to look beyond the inconsistency of Christians before them, to look for Jesus. I pray that you would give us courage to actually look at who Jesus is, who the scriptures show and the Holy Spirit commends, to look at who Jesus is and not to make Jesus into our image, but that we might be conformed to his image. And I pray we would be just like the servants with the mina. We would just put your mina, your deposit to work with full faith that it will accomplish much. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, verse 1. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And, and so, like, what did Zacchaeus do to be saved? Zacchaeus climbed a tree. You know, and, and so let me say it in another way, and this gets beneath the text just a little bit to us. To be saved, you must get over your pride. You must sacrifice your pride. Like a lot of commentaries talk about how undignified it was for a man of his stature, but for any men to, to climb a tree in that culture. Like they're like, man, that is way beneath for someone who is important to climb up a tree. Like they wear tunics, that could be awkward, you know, don't look up. But that, 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 that was beneath everyone. It was humiliating. But I just want to ask this question. When was the last time you climbed a tree? Like, as an adult, like when was the, I know some of you are like, oh, yesterday. There's a few of you, Okay. But like, when was the last time you climbed a tree? We got outside and went to the park. My kids rate trees on their climbability. That is a good tree. And then all of a sudden I look up and all my kids are perched up in the tree. So I take a picture, you know what I mean? So they're all, like my kids look at trees and they think, man, that is climbable. They want me to build a tree house and we don't have a suitable tree in our neighborhood, you know what I mean? not going to happen. They look at trees in wonder and think, man, what could life be like up there? What might I see from up there? I can tell you the last time I climbed a tree. We, uh, Cruz had gotten a uh, cheap little drone and uh, we, you know, crashed it against all the walls inside the house and we thought, we'll take it outside. It was a little windy. Um, and uh, I didn't, you know, hey, listen, this is like I'll take care of this, kids, you know. So I took the little toggles into my hand, and we set it on the ground, and I push up, and that drone zips up to like 150 feet in like a second. So what do I do? I take my fingers off the toggles. It starts to free fall down, so I push it back up on the toggles. It zips back up like 200 feet. We go through that like chaotic moment of up and down. My kids are just watching like this the whole time. Uh, for like a few minutes, because I can't just level it off. And then a, a big uh, breeze caught it, and it blew itself into my neighbor's tree in the very, very tippy top of like this 
I don't know, 35, 40 foot tree, maybe bigger. I can't, I mean, I'm thinking like basketball goal stacked up. It's like way up at the top, just kind of looped around a branch, like garland on a Christmas tree, just sitting there. And my kids, like they instantly like are sad. What are we going to do? I'm like, don't worry, I'll get it. And so I climb up this tree. I'm getting up to the top, you know, where you kind of start to like, you know, you're kind of moving around like this. And I have this thought of like, I could go buy a new one for $35 or I could die. <laughs> but I'm committed. I mean, this is man work here. I'm going to climb this tree. So I get up and you have to kind of shake it out. You know, I'm up there on the branch that's supporting my life right now. I'm kind of shaking it. And finally, you know, it falls down to a lower branch. They have to skimmy out on the, you know, tree, you know, limb. And by this time, the crowds are kind of gathering around like, you guys want to see someone die? And, I'm like, <laughs> and you know, I, I get it down. Guys. Guys, I got it down. I'm here today. I got it down. But it's not like when this culture looked at people climbing trees, it wasn't for the sense of adventure. It wasn't for the sense of like, can I escape death? It was frowned upon in the same way that it's beneath you. You're an adult. You know, and maybe even put it kind of more in our culture, like if you think of someone really important, like maybe like the, the boss of your company, like the CEO of your company, or, or the dean of your school, like think about this, like them trying to see some sort of parade, but you, the crowd, the people who like are like their students, like keeping them out, like no, 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 we don't like you. You have power in the classroom, but you don't have power here. Get out of here. And then Dr. Whatever goes up and skinnies up a tree to see what's going on. It'd be beneath them. Listen, they did not write a dissertation to just get a glimpse of the KU basketball team walking into Allen Fieldhouse. They wrote a dissertation to get seatbacks. It would be beneath them. When every commentary makes this big deal, when Zacchaeus climbed this tree. It was humiliating. If you want to be saved, you have to stand on your pride. You have to get over whatever sense of self-saving that you've accomplished. You have to get over the idea of all the accounts of I'm important because I did this, because all of those things mean nothing at the foot of the cross except damnation for you. Your efforts can't save you. Zacchaeus climbed a tree. To be saved, you must sacrifice your pride. And the scriptures are clear. You know, I mean, the scriptures say over and over, like, you have to become like a child. Jesus said you have to become like a child. In Mark 10, it'll be up on the screen. In Mark 10, verse 13, he says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Jesus is important. He doesn't have time to touch your snotty-nosed kid. I mean, I mean, there's no time for that. And then look, verse 14, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. And then look, he clarifies it. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Jesus said clearly, for us 
to be saved, for us to come to him, we have to be like children who just sense our need and reach. You have to get over your pride. You know, even just thinking about that, thinking of like childlike wonder. My kids see a tree and they're like, man, I want to climb that. There's a childlike wonder in that. Or, or think about it like this. Think about the stories that captivated your heart when you were a kid. Like we, we call them fairy tales. Like the stories that captivated your heart. Like, like Narnia. You know, Aslan has to give his life in Edmund's place, thus fulfilling the deeper magic of Narnia and undoing death itself. Like the theme, we're under a death sentence because of our treason. And we need a sacrificial love to save us. Or, or a, a story I'm rereading with two of my other kids. I read it with Quinn, The Wingfeather Saga by, by Andrew Peterson. I mean, it's just a beautiful story. It's incredible. And, and so the, the story is about these three kids who are actually, um, they they're actually have royal blood and they're actually the next king and uh, throne warden and uh, song maiden of a place called Avenaria that had been captured and destroyed under Nag the Nameless. That's dark, right? Nag the Nameless. But you just told me his name. Nag the Nameless. And what Nag does is he takes people and he construes them and turns them into monsters and they become his servants. Less human. Construed. And so if you don't want to hear, if you want to read it, I mean, you need Put your ears, you know, fingers in your ears right now. At the end, what happens is you see these people, there's a destiny, these kids, there's a destiny upon their lives, and they're slowly, it's unfolding as they get closer to it, as they try to get back to an area, as they try to bring their kingdom back. And there's a moment where Tink, the younger brother, who's the high king of an area, he realizes for his people to be made whole again, for them not to be monsters anymore, they have to be melded together with his strength. And so he takes these ancient stones as he enters the crowds of these broken people. And as they sing the ancient uh, magical song, it starts to meld them. And in that moment, Janner, the older brother, who in this kingdom, the younger brother's the king, the older brother's the throne warden, his whole job is to protect the king. Protect the king. And over the time, <clears throat> I may cry, it's a beautiful story. Um, <laughs> He was growing into this and he just heard in his soul, protect, protect, protect. And he swings in and he grabs the ancient stone and he says, they'll need a king when this is done. And as his strength is drawn from him and he dies, the kingdom is made whole. You see, like the theme of this beautiful story is that we have been contorted by a darkness making us less than human under a dark spell and we need to be melded with a life that is untouched by that dark enchantment. Or a book, books I haven't read yet or movies I haven't seen. You know, you got Harry Potter. Now, Quinn and I will read that. I'm reading Wingfeather right now to uh, uh, cruise and live. And, and Quinn, she knocks books out. We'll read it together. We're just... You know, we're kind of in the Percy Jackson nomad world right now, um, where I have to be like, hey, you realize these are fake gods, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> and so we will read it, but, but I, I know all about it. I know all about it because Kendra was in my city group, and she related every spiritual thing to, to Harry Potter. She was like this. But like, what, what's the story of Harry Potter? Like, let's just ask this question. How is Harry Potter saved from Lord Voldemort? Voldemort, right? 
That's right? Okay, yeah, Voldemort. And the answer is this. I, I Wikipedia. The answer is Lily Potter sacrifices her life in order to protect her infant son, Harry. This places Harry under magical protection so that when Voldemort casts the killing curse at Harry, it backfires, leaving with a killer lightning-shaped uh, scar on his forehead. And Voldemort is disembodied. I read that, all right? But do you see the theme of that? We need a sacrificial love that transports us safely through a spell of death. It delivers us safely, but it leaves us with a scar. Don't miss what I'm saying. I am not saying the gospel is another fairy tale. I'm saying all the fairy tales that captured your heart as a child are pointing to the truest reality that your heart knows real. There is a brokenness in this world and a spell of confusion that keeps getting worse and worse. And I need someone to enter in to deliver me from it. And to somehow be unified with this Savior sacrificing God. Somehow I'm unified with Him and I'm made whole. And I still walk with a limp at times, and I'm still going to have scars, but I am promised to be with him. I'm saying all of these things are pointing to the truest reality. And in this world, people will look at you and say, man, that's just kid stuff. They're going to look at you and they're going to say, do you actually believe in like angels and demons and like Satan? Do you actually believe in a sacrificial God who died for your sins that you might reign with him forever? Do you actually believe in that old construct called sin? They're going to look at you and say, man, you're like a child. And I do. I do believe that. It actually makes me see the world rightly. And the history, the historical evidence is mounting up every day about the validity of the New Testament that is built upon the Old Testament. And so if that's you, if you've stood on your pride and people are going to look at you, you're in this treehouse club called Christianity. And listen, there are, you're in that with some pretty cool people. Like February, we got an extra day of February, uh, Black History Month. Like every February, I always read um, uh, some of Martin Luther King Jr., and I'm just moved, and sometimes I just weep. And uh, man, I read something I hadn't ever read before. Um, when he got the Nobel Peace Prize, his entry speech. And I just want to say this, like if you, if you think, well, you know, the Bible just kind of teaches us to be good or whatever, you cannot embrace Martin Luther King Jr. as a civil rights leader bringing equality without embracing that he was motivated out of his faith. Like, listen to what he writes. He writes this. This is his speech. I accept this award today with an abiding faith in America and an audacious faith in the future of mankind. I refuse to accept despair as the final response to the ambiguities of history. I refuse to accept the idea that the isness of man's present nature makes him morally incapable of reaching up for the eternal oughtness that forever confronts him. I refuse to accept the idea that man is mere flotsam or jetsam in the river of life, unable to influence the unfolding events which surround him. I refuse 
to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. And then it goes on, he says, I still believe. I still believe that one day mankind will bow before the altars of God and be crowned triumphant over war and bloodshed. And nine violent redemption, uh, redemptive good will proclaim the rule of the land. And the lion and the lamb shall lie together. And every man shall sit under his own vine and fig tree and none shall be afraid. I still believe that we shall overcome. You cannot embrace the civil rights leader of Martin Luther King and not see the roots of his faith that demanded justice and equality. So if you're a Christian, hey, you're in a pretty cool treehouse. You get to hang out with that dude. The first thing, the first thing, thing that Zacchaeus did was he climbed a tree and he got over his pride. The first step toward salvation for you is that you climb up and you get over your pride. The only thing that you can bring to the cross is your need. Zacchaeus climbed a tree and sacrificed his pride to be saved. Zacchaeus also looked beyond the crowd to be saved, you must look past the religious, self-righteous crowd to see Jesus. Like just, we're not going to go into it a whole, whole lot. This crowd, because we talked about it a lot, this crowd of religious people hated tax collectors. And they hated them for good reason. They had betrayed their country and they were getting rich on deceit. And so they were like working for the enemy. Like they betrayed them. They hated him, so they didn't make room for him. And so look at verse 5. And so he climbed the tree so he could see Jesus. And said, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. See, Jesus looked up and he saw Zacchaeus and he said, I want to come into your life. I want to come to where you live. This is what we see all over the New Testament. Like, like Jesus loves to enter into the lives of, of those who the crowd, the religious crowd, looks past and tries to keep away. And so just recap what we've covered. Luke 5. It was Levi the tax collector. Jesus celebrates his conversion in front of the scribes and the Pharisees. Or, or Luke 7, we covered. The prostitute who broke into the dinner party and, and embraced Jesus. Jesus welcomed her and refused to push her away. Or, or we got Luke 10. Jesus tells a story about the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, an outsider, as the hero of the story, not the Levite. Like Jesus keeps reaching out to outsiders. Religion says, if I'm good enough, then I can be saved. The gospel says the opposite. The gospel of Jesus says, I came to seek and to save those who aren't good enough. I came to seek and to save the lost. And it's the outsider that can see that they're lost. So let's keep going. Look at verse 6. So he, Zacchaeus, hurried and came down and received him joyfully. 
And when they saw it, the crowd who was pushing him away, when the crowd saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. You know, they, they hated the idea that Jesus accepted Zacchaeus and went to his house. They hated the idea that Jesus would get close to this kind of guy. Matter of fact, the crowd hated the idea that Zacchaeus and Jesus would breathe the same air. Look at that word. It says, do you see where it says they grumbled? It comes from a, a compound word in the Greek, dia gaguzo. Gaguzo. It's hard, okay? Uh, dia gaguzo. It's made of two words. So the second word first, gaguzo, it means like this low, disapproving murmur. It is like an onomatopoeia. Gaguzo. Oh, great. Gaguzo. You know, it sounds like what it means, displeasure. I can't believe you would do it. And then the word that comes before it, dia, it just means something that goes throughout everything. Throughout. The whole crowd felt the same thing in their soul. Gaguzo, I can't believe. I can't believe that you would embrace that guy. I can't believe that you would go to his house. You know, this, this, this culture, like there weren't like bed and breakfasts. There weren't hotels. And so when you came into a city, you would pay someone to stay at their house. And so like you would stay as their guest. Like that's what it said right there. It said, he's gone to be the guest. That means he's going, he's going to eat there, it's going to be a long meal, and then he's going to stay the night there. He's going to enter into the home of this sinner, and that's what Jesus does. Jesus comes over, he invites him, I want to come to your house, and he wants to enter every dark corner of your soul. He wants to enter every dark place, the place that you feel is unpresentable, he wants to bring his light and he wants to walk around you know, today, I mean, I, I, I know you've heard this. Most of you probably said it at some point. If you came to Christ later in life, like more as an adult, you, you've said this at some point. The crowd, the church crowd is a huge hindrance and a huge scapegoat for why I won't embrace Jesus. They'll look at the religious crowd and they'll say, I mean, I, I don't want to be judgmental, hypocritical like them. If Jesus is real, then they wouldn't be like that. Well, just for a moment, how judgmental and hypocritical is that? I don't want to be like them. I mean, this, I, I, I've heard it. I bet most, a lot of you have probably said it. Like the second thing I would just say, like you have to see past the inconsistency of the religious people, past the inconsistency of even Christians who are trying to do their best, you have to see past those inconsistency and you have to study Jesus. You have to go to the very middle. You have to study Jesus. Like, have you read the Bible? Just read Luke. We've been going through Luke. Just read Luke and like just kind of highlight all the times that Jesus goes after the people that were really broken and he embraces them. It's like every other page. <clears throat> the same thing that disgusts you about the inconsistency or the judgmental spirit of Christians that you might not be able to get past or the church crowd you might not get past, it frustrates and disgusts Jesus also. Read the accounts. Go straight to what Jesus says. He loved to draw near 
to those people who are marginalized and broken and everyone else. He loved to draw near them. And he wasn't afraid to talk about their sin. But just think about the demeanor of Jesus. You know, the, the woman caught in adultery, he doesn't just say, okay, I've, you know, after they're trying to stone her and he writes in the dirt and he like protects her. He doesn't just say, okay, go now. He says, go leave your life of sin. He's not afraid to talk about their sin. But those people he is tender to, the people who he is not tender to, are the religious people who think they don't need grace because they're better than everyone else. Like, let me just give you a little sampling. Look at Matthew 23. That's all we're going to go. Matthew 23, it'll be up on the screen. You don't have to go there. Verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. Or jump down to verse 23, and I'm skipping over a lot of woe statements. It says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. <clears throat> justice and mercy and faithfulness, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Or verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Like, I want to let you in on a little secret. We all struggle with self-righteousness. Jesus has woe statements for all of us. But when we walk to him with our brokenness, he has compassion that draws near. It's not that he loved the scribes and the Pharisees less. He had to be harsh with them to get to their hearts. Because self-righteousness entangles and embitters. It is the dark spell over us. The idea that you can escape the brokenness that you know is inside. The idea that you can work yourself to a place or a position that you won't feel like that broken, scared kid anymore. The idea that you can atone somehow for past sins by being good. Or the idea that if you say, I just don't care about them, that it's going to go away. That is all self-righteousness. It is the dark spell that we need to be redeemed. Someone has to enter who hasn't been touched by the spell. So Zacchaeus climbed a tree, sacrificing his pride to be saved. Zacchaeus got past the judgmental crowd to see Jesus. He saw the crowd around Jesus. He's like, man, I know they hate me. I know they don't have time for me. I want to see what Jesus is about. I got to look over them. If you're not a Christian, have you even studied the life of Jesus? Third thing. Zacchaeus let Jesus in. You know, Jesus said, hey, I want to stay at your house. I want to go home with you. Zacchaeus let him in to be saved. You must bring Jesus home into your whole life, the whole of your life. It's all or nothing. You have to bring him home. Like Zacchaeus brought him home. But the order of this is so important. Like I don't want you to miss this. Jesus invites himself over. It's kind of rude. We have to talk to our kids about it. Like, they, like hey, can you call so-and-so and see if I can go to their house? Like, hey, it doesn't work that way. I mean, I wish it did. Hey, can you just take my kid for like yeah, hours, hours? Um, and so Jesus 
steps to him. Jesus invites himself over. Number two, Zacchaeus receives him with joy. Like you saw that. With joy he received him. And then number three, Zacchaeus repents. And so let's look at that. First, Jesus comes near, verse 5. Look at verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house. Zacchaeus didn't initiate this coming. Like He was trying to get a look at it, but nothing happened until Jesus drew near to him. Like the word right there, when it says stay, I must stay at your house, it's the word minnow. It's also often translated as like abide. It's used to talk about how the Holy Spirit comes to abide in us, covering every crook and cranny, filling every hole. Every valley is raised up. Every mountain is brought down, preparing the way for the Lord. He completely saturates your life. Jesus comes near Like to drive the gospel into your daily rhythms. He's not coming to be your Sunday activity. He's not coming, you know, just to be in this one day of the week. He wants your work. He wants your hobbies. He wants your sadness and your pains. He wants your shames and your hope. He wants your sexuality and your relationships. He wants your desires and your dreams. He is coming to abide, to sacrifice, to get into everything. That's the invitation. Number two, Zacchaeus receives him with joy. Look at verse six. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. He doesn't draw boundaries and say, okay, 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 okay. You can come into the living room, but that's it. My closet's a mess. The bathroom, you don't want to go in there. I mean, he doesn't do that. He says, it's all open to you. Just come in. And then look what happens at verse eight. Zacchaeus repents. Look at it. So in, in verse 8, repent. It means he, he says all the wrongs he does and he wants to like admit them and he wants to apply what he can to fix them. Like he's sorry. In verse 8 it says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord. Like now he sees Jesus. You are Lord. Behold, Lord. The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold, a going beyond any law. Like he's a wealthy man. He didn't just stand up and say, okay, finally I'll tithe. I'll give 10%. I mean, if you're wealthy, 10% isn't cutting real deep into your life. It's not generous. I mean, if you're poor, you're like, how much? I mean, okay. And so he, he has this change where he says, I know I've done wrong. Right now, half of what I have is given. You know, just, just real fast. Um, we're coming up to be about six years old uh, that we've been here in Lawrence. Um, and so, I mean, it took a while where we had to meet people, convince them to come hang out in our living room and look at the Bible with us. And then that grew. And then we were in two living rooms. And then we started meeting on Sunday night. And then we got here. And so when we started, we were 100% funded from God's people in other places who will never reap the benefit of a free city church until eternity. People gave generously. And over the, you know, five years, you know, what God has done is he's, he's given us you. And, and we're really 100% funded on the inside now, which like, yeah, it's good. It's, yeah, it's good. Yeah. Um, but you guys are, most of you are like really poor, you know? I mean, um, and so, uh, 
like just in response to this, like this is just what we say. Uh, we try to, we, we want to do this as cheaply as we can. Um, but the, the mission of God's church comes at the sacrifice of God's people. And so like we just lay this question, like, I mean, are you, is, if this is something that's moved your heart, if this is something, like, I'm a part of this, like just like Zacchaeus, like there has to be some response of I'm going to fund it. Um, and I know you're like, man, I work like this stupid job and, you know, I might go to school and you're like, man, I don't have much money. God just, when he talks about generosity, he looks at the widow who gave two pennies. He says, man, I'm going to do far more with this. This is far more sacrificial. And so we don't, we don't, you know, we don't talk about money a lot and we actually need to do it more because the Bible talks a lot about it. But look at what happened. He was confronted with his sin and the instant thing he wants to is he wants to invest his life into the ministry of Jesus. I'm going to give. And so just Jesus comes near, Zacchaeus receives him with joy, and then he repents of wrongdoing. And then look at verse 9. Jesus says, he is saved. And so Jesus said to him, verse 9, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. (coughs) This is really important. Jesus didn't expect Zacchaeus to pull it all together before Jesus spent time with Zacchaeus. See, self-righteousness looks at broken people and says, hey, 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 you can belong here if you get your stuff together. You got to stop doing that. You got to do a lot more of this. And then if you stop doing enough of that and do enough of this, and then you like affirm and believe what we believe, then I'm going to hang out with you. Jesus hung out first. Jesus entered in and it, 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 it rocked people's world. They were like, man, what are you doing? And then as he embodied, the embodied savior of our world was present with them. It started to move in every crook and cranny, every dark place of insecurity and fear. And it started to remove that as the grace of God stepped in. And then it moved them to say, Lord, I repent. That's how the gospel works. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is seeking you to come in. He comes in and he saturates saturates the whole of you, pushing himself into every dark corner. Repentance happens. It is the natural overflow of grace seen and experienced. And then you are a child of God. The way Jesus says it here is a son of Abraham. But let me show you how the Bible goes on to describe this, what just happened. You have John 1.12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Or John 5.24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Or Galatians chapter 4 says this. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. A darkness over our lives. But... (coughs) 
I'm okay. <clears throat> but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit, a spirit, his mina, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, or 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. Or 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. To become a Christian, you must be like Zacchaeus. You must step on your pride. You must stop using the inconsistent crowd as an excuse not to look into Jesus. And you have to look into Jesus. What did he say? What did he do? You must bring Jesus home into every crook and cranny of your life and just say this. I mean, that's not what you're saying. This is all that I am. Then you too will be saved. Then you too will cross over from death to life. Then you too will become adopted as a child of God. Then you too can cry out, Abba, Father, because of the deposit guaranteeing his come. Then you too can become a new creation. Then you too can behold the glory of God as he transforms you from one to the other. It's the gospel. If you're a Christian, someone who is now adopted in as a son, who's passed from death to life, who is now a new creation being transformed as the Spirit of God pushes into every dark corner, then you must come to the family table. You must come. Like when we come, it's just a picture like when you come to the table, you need nourishment to live you must come forward saying, man, I need this every day. I need Jesus every day. There are dark places in my life he hasn't pushed into, but he's paid for. I need help opening that door. And the way that that door was opened into your life, the way the spell of darkness is pulled out of your soul is by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He took it all upon himself so that we could behold his glory. The way we take communion is we start on the bread side and we tear a piece away, remembering that his body was broken. His body was literally broken. And then we dip it into the wine, remember that his blood was spilled. The wine is in the stoneware. Um, the grape juice is in the glassware. And then we have gluten-free options in the middle of the table. We come as a physical reminder that we have to go to Jesus. But we can only go to Jesus because he first came to us. Let me pray for us.